Hi, it's Ken White. And it's Josh Barrow, and it's Serious Trouble. Uh, so Ken and I are taping this episode on Thursday, or well, we taped part of it on Wednesday. Uh, we had an episode in the can for you, mostly ready to go, and then the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals stepped on us as we were getting ready to, to distribute the episode, and so we've we've updated this with what is now the key piece of breaking legal news this week, which is that the 11th Circuit, a three-judge panel of the 11th Circuit, granted the Department of Justice's request for a partial stay of that order from Judge Eileen Cannon, uh, which had uh, named a special master and enjoined the federal government from using various documents for criminal investigative purposes. And what the 11th Circuit has said is they are imposing a stay, and that means that for now, the federal government is allowed to use those approximately 100 marked classified documents that were seized from Mar-a-Lago for criminal investigative purposes, and they do not need to share those documents with the special master or with Donald Trump's legal team. Uh, and Ken, this is a pretty harshly worded order from the appeals court here. And so they're, they're just ruling on a stay, and they emphasize that you know they haven't overturned Judge Cannon's order yet, that they're not at that stage in the process. But they, they strongly indicate here that Judge Cannon got more or less everything wrong, and that when they actually consider this whole thing on appeal, that they are going to overturn her. Um, it seems uh, it seems pretty harsh. It is. Uh, it's harsh in a genteel federal judge sort of way, but it, it is uh, a genteel beatdown of Judge Cannon. So remember that the Department of Justice made the strategic decision to ask for a very narrow stay, not of appointing a special master, not of anything relating to most of the documents seized from Mar-a-Lago, but just these hundred marked secret documents. And that turns out, I think, to have been an excellent strategic choice because it it really framed the issue well for the 11th Circuit and they ran with it. The 11th Circuit said they were granting this uh, emergency relief the government was seeking because the government had demonstrated it was likely to prevail on the merits. And that's an indication of where the 11th Circuit thinks things are going. And then the 11th Circuit just started saying the things, uh, recognizing the arguments that by all rights, Judge Cannon should have been doing in the first place. So for instance, with respect to these 100 documents, the 11th Circuit took the position that, well, first of all, you speculated that maybe the president, uh, the former president could have declassified him, but you haven't offered any evidence of that. There's nothing in the record. And even if there were, declassifying them uh, wouldn't magically transform them into Trump's personal property that he had a right to and therefore could invoke the court's equitable jurisdiction over. Those are the big obvious arguments that the Department of Justice has been jumping up and down and screaming about. Uh, and the 11th Circuit very easily agreed with those and, and seemed to indicate that there was really no doubt about them. There's a number of places where the 11th Circuit simply took up simple, direct arguments the Department of Justice made that Judge Cannon sort of blew past. Among them, the court took a much more typical federal court approach to uh, national security and secret document issues, uh, reflecting, for better or worse, the much broader deference courts usually give to the government's uh, determinations on those issues. So overall, it was a, a very strong in indication that they thought that Judge Cannon got it completely wrong and that the rest of it was likely to go too, because even though the government's request for relief was narrow, only about these hundred documents, uh, the 11th Circuit's argument 
basically destroys all the uh, logical underpinnings of Judge Cannon's entire order uh, from start to finish. Yeah, I mean, it's they say she abused her discretion by appointing a special master here. And so the special master is still in place and will still conduct a review of a large number of documents that are not marked classified. Am I correct to infer from the government's positioning here that they don't care that much about the documents that are not marked classified? That they, they didn't want a special master for that, but the thing that's actually going to really impede their investigation is if they have to put those approximately 100 mark classified documents through that process. And so if the rest of it, you know, if there's a month tie up with the rest of the documents with the special master, the government doesn't seem to care that much about that. I think that's exactly right. And that takes uh, a certain amount of litigation maturity not to get into unnecessary fights with a federal judge. This is an area where you've got two powerful entities very jealous about their own power. One, the the federal government, uh, particularly its its federal criminal investigative arm, saying that we're the ones who make get to make these decisions. And the other, a federal judge, very typically federal judging around saying, I get to make this decision. So the, the investigators here made a very shrewd decision only to fight the fight that uh, they needed to. And that was over the documents, the Mark classified documents. But yeah, Josh, the, the, the opinion basically cuts out several fundamental basic requirements of what Judge Cannon was doing about the whole mess, not just about the classified documents. They say, for instance, for this judge to be um, invoking equitable jurisdiction over the situation, they have to show that there's a callous disregard for Trump's rights. And they say the judge can't even found there wasn't any indication of that. So she has no business doing this. Yeah, it's this sort of cutting thing where they say it's it's this four factor test of whether the, the court should provide equitable relief. But the, the appeals court basically says the first factor is the most important factor, the callous disregard. And if you find that there wasn't callous disregard, then that's enough to conclude that you shouldn't appoint the special master. And they say, so we don't need to go to the other factors, but for completeness, we will. And then they proceed to explain why she also got the other three factors wrong and that all four of the factors in the test uh, cut toward the idea that there should not be a special master. And that's significant, Josh, because in general, federal courts like to be conservative in a judicial sense. That is, only reach the issues they need to reach and not reach and resolve issues they don't need to reach. When a federal court does this, says, even though this first factor completely knocks this out, but we're going to go through the rest already, that is a strong sign that they think this decision was wrong from top to bottom. Josh, it's important to note here, by the way, who's making this decision. Uh, mm-hmm. These are three judges on the 11th Circuit, two appointed by former President Trump, one appointed by former President Obama. And it was a unanimous decision by them. Uh, it was per curiam, that is, by the court. So it didn't attribute the writing of the opinion to anyone in particular. But a 3-0 decision on this by two Trump judges, so-called, shows you how obvious uh, these judges seem to think it was. One of the questions here when people talk about Trump judges and that sort of thing is the extent to which any of these judges have loyalty to him personally versus to certain ideas uh, that have been at the core of conservative 
judging and of the, you know, the sort of what you learn as a Federalist Society product heading toward the federal bench. In general, these are judges who will tend to be relatively deferential toward the federal government in criminal cases. Take a broad view of the of the powers of federal prosecutors are more skeptical uh, toward defense attorneys trying to make uh, objections to the prosecutorial process, especially at stages like this. And so you have, I mean, for example, one of the two judges on this panel that Donald Trump appointed is Britt Grant, whose husband was in the CIA. And she has this, you know, very standard uh, resume for a, an, an elite conservative lawyer, uh, law schools and such. But it's it's clear that she has this very typical resume for an elite conservative lawyer in terms of, of law school and, and clerkships and such. But it's sort of going to her and basically saying, you know, well, let's toss aside the concerns of the intelligence agencies about the, the importance of protecting classified documents that could, even, that could even address human sources and that sort of thing. When you have people who have that institutional grounding in the conservative legal project, that's a harder sell, I would think, uh, than just, you know, here, like, do what Donald Trump wants. It's a much harder sell. And, you know, judges exist on a continuum uh, from extremely result oriented and my team, no matter what, to extremely principled and, uh, you know, going to reach whatever the law dictates, even if it comes to something I hate. Uh, some judges are closer to one side. Some judges are in the middle, some closer to the other side. And, and this was a situation, I think, where this was what you would expect from most judges along that continuum, simply because the arguments Trump was making were so completely out of bounds. And, and antithetical to other parts of what you might think of as your team. I mean, if you have a generally warm view toward the intelligence apparatus, uh, then, you know, that's, that's something to consider, even if you're sort of considering, you know, how you feel about various interested parties in a, uh, in, in a case like this. Well, Josh, like we've been saying for years, all the Trump investigations rustle uh, all of our ideological jimmies and, and wind us uh, <laughs> up, uh, you know, in positions we normally wouldn't. People who would normally distrust uh, the federal criminal justice mechanism suddenly become big boosters of it. And people who have always been raw, raw, law and order all of a sudden sound like, uh, you know, a, a 1970s sociology professor. One thing that had been a problem for the Trump team, uh, both in in forming this 11th Circuit opinion and then also in uh, uh, the first proceeding that happened before the special master, which happened uh, earlier in the week before this ruling came down, this ruling makes the special master's job significantly easier. They spent part of this session in front of the special master figuring out what the hell they're going to do with these classified documents, who's even allowed to look at them. The judge was saying, Judge Deary, the senior judge who was named to be the special master, was saying that he was hoping to find a way that even he personally would not have to look at the documents um, because because he's focused on trying to ensure that these classified documents that are only supposed to be shown to people who need to see them, that they be shown around as little as possible. Um, and so now, because of this 11th Circuit order, they don't need to review these documents. But prior to that, uh, there was this discussion where the, the Trump attorneys raised the possibility uh, that the former president had declassified these documents, but they wouldn't assert in court that he'd done so. And you had Judge Deary basically saying, you can't have your cake and eat it. Trump is the plaintiff in this suit. Remember, he's not a criminal defendant here asserting various rights. He has sued the government seeking various relief, including the return of documents he says are his. And so he needs to affirmatively assert that the documents belong to him um, and that he has the right to possess them. And so since he's not going to make that assertion, Judge Deary was basically saying, well, I'm going to take the government's prima facie evidence that these documents are classified because they're marked classified unless you provide me evidence to the contrary. And so that was very unimpressive to Judge Deary and to the 11th Circuit in terms 
terms of the former president seeking this relief uh, without actually making any of the, the requisite claims to say that he has any interest in the documents. Absolutely. This, this was a one-two punch against Trump. The, the First, the Judge Deary hearing, and then this 11th Circuit ruling. Basically, Judge Deary implied that he was going in the direction that this 11th Circuit ruling then explicitly said. He, he strongly suggested he wasn't going to let Trump get away with saying, well, maybe they're declassified, maybe they're not. It's not fair to make us say. It's not fair to make us tip our hand to our defense. And Judge Deere was pretty clearly conveying he didn't think that was a thing. And, and you could say that in certain circumstances in the context of an actual prosecution where you're the defendant. Well, exactly. But that's not where Trump is right now. No, Trump is, is a plaintiff asking a federal court to invoke very rarely invoked equitable power in connection with the search. The far more typical way of seeking a remedy for something wrong with the search is once there's a prosecution to try to suppress the evidence. Uh, so in this context where he's affirmatively going out asking for extraordinary relief, he doesn't get to do that. And at the same time say, I shouldn't be forced to tip my hand. Now, let me just say, not tipping his hand is good strategy. Uh, because for Trump to come out and do declarations or whatever saying, yes, I thought about these documents and I declassified them, and I know these particular documents at Mar-a-Lago were declassified, would basically be admitting some of the elements of the crimes that they're investigating, uh, because they would show that he had exercised you know, knowing dominion over the documents and make it more likely that he had deliberately kept them. Right, because because it, the documents don't necessarily have to be classified for it to have been a crime for him to keep them. The crimes that they listed on the search warrant that they were investigating do not necessarily rely on the classification status of the documents. That's right. Classification is is largely a red herring, as, as the 11th Circuit pretty much explicitly said. So this was a rare instance of somebody prevailing on Trump to make a smart decision criminal defense-wise, but he still, you know, can't resist going for all this relief that he's not entitled to. Well, except, I mean, did they have client control? Because then uh, Donald Trump did an interview with Sean Hannity in which he said, I declassified everything. And then he also describes that, you know, when you're the president, you can declassify documents in your own mind. If you just think about them being declassified, then they're declassified. And he's saying that basically, you know, that he was sending the documents to places like Mar-a-Lago was indicative of them having been declassified. Uh, and so it's, you know, the, it's the usual mess of a Trump statement. He never explicitly says, I declassified these documents. He says, I declassified everything, whatever everything means. There were also various instances when he was president where he would claim often on Twitter that he had declassified certain documents related to investigations or other things that he was mad about. And then reporters would file freedom of information requests saying, let's see these documents that were declassified. And the response would come back from the agencies that the documents were not in fact declassified, that there had never been a declassification order. So Trump has a specific history of saying that certain documents were declassified when they actually weren't. But so does, th does that statement on television, does that undermine a potential criminal defense in which he would claim that he did not personally intend to take certain government documents with him certain places if he's on television claiming, you know, I declassified everything in, in my own mind? Okay, yes. If you, if you want to be hypercritical here, Josh, that was confessing to elements of several crimes on <laughs> national television. But... but we're grading on a curve here, okay? Um, in, in terms of the wisdom uh, of moves, in terms of how well they work in your federal criminal defense, we have to compare it to what Trump is normally like. And, and you're getting perilously close to to uh, criticizing the font on a two-year-old's I love you, mommy and daddy card. <laughs> <So> <laughs> 
um, speaking of uh, questionable choices uh, in the process of setting oneself up for possibly being indicted, the fact that Judge Raymond Deary became the special master in this case in the first place. And so I guess this is less important than it looked like it might be because the 11th Circuit sort of cut out the heart of the, the part of the process that the government was really bothered by and that the Trump team seemed to really want to do with these the, the review of these classified documents. But in any case, Judge Deary is still going to be there overseeing a review of a large number of documents not marked classified. He's a senior judge, a very experienced federal judge appointed to the bench by Ronald Reagan in Brooklyn, New York. And it was a little bit puzzling why his name was put forward by the Trump team. This was Trump's pick to be special master in this case. He has no known particular affiliation uh, with with Trump. He has not made any particular public statements that would suggest that he was going to be an especially favorable special master for them. And that's presumably why the federal government did not object to him. They said that he was a perfectly suitable choice. If you were going to have a special master, he was fine. And there were these statements. uh, Jonathan Swan at Axios uh, said that people close to Trump felt that because Judge Deary had spent some time on the FISA court, and had been involved in some of the Carter Page stuff where there were FISA warrants issued that really should not have been, that they felt that Judge Deary had taken from that experience a real skepticism of the FBI and would would understand how they, you know, how untrustworthy the 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 FBI is and how they would be very unfair to Donald Trump, et cetera, et cetera. And Trump himself made a statement like that in the interview with Sean Hannity about that that's why they wanted Judge Deary. That did not pan out at all. Like Judge Deary was taking a very skeptical line, very, very similar to the 11th Circuit's line about what this process should even look like and seemed to be setting up a way to review the classified documents where even Judge Deary would not have to look at them personally, let alone allow the Trump team to examine those documents. So it seems like they, if they thought they were making a particularly good choice there about special master from their perspective, they were mistaken. Well, I don't know if we can take at face value their claims of why they chose a particular special master. This whole thing may be largely about um, slowing things down, about delay without a strong expectation they would get of an eventual good result. And Deary is only part of that delay. Judge Cannon, in ruling on Deary's recommendations, is the other phase. And so far, she's demonstrated a willingness to make some pretty wacky rulings that are not really legally based. Yeah, although Judge Deary was not going to be, that was the other thing that some people had suggested. They thought Judge Deary, who was quite old, would be slow. But then Judge Deary proposed a a calendar for uh, how they would review the documents that the Trump team was immediately dissatisfied with, said it was too fast. You want us us to make all of these, you know, declarations by October 7th. That's way too soon. Right. So he was was not going to participate in a delay strategy either. Well, I mean, Josh, they may have had a strategy. If if the strategy was Deary is going to do things that are going to be good for us, uh, then it was dumb. Uh, I mean, the truth is these are not very bright guys and and things are getting out of hand. (laughs) There's this other issue of Judge Deary is supposed to oversee review for privilege, and attorney-client privilege is easy. It's fairly easy to figure out what's an attorney-client privilege document, and the document has to be a personal document for it to be attorney-client privileged here because it's it has to be advice from Trump's personal attorney, not from a, a government attorney. The idea was he was also supposed to review documents for executive privilege, and that was a, a very thorny problem about what would it even mean for a document to be executive privileged here. With regard to the classified documents or the marked classified documents, the 11th Circuit deals with a fair amount of dispatch, basically, that, you know, even if there could be an assertion of privilege, it would be overcome by the strong interest of the uh, Justice Department in reviewing this document for various purposes. This is similar to the justification about documents related to Richard Nixon. Right. That might be less true for the documents not marked classified. 
What is that going to look like for Judge Deary to review those documents for executive privilege? Did he say anything that, that made clear what sort of standards he would use for that? He didn't. And as you suggested earlier, it could be at this point, uh, Department of Justice doesn't particularly care about the remainder of the documents, that they're really interested in the classified ones. But his statements before the 11th Circuit basically ratified them suggested that he didn't think that classified documents could be executive privileged. And he is certainly cognizant of the limits on executive privilege. And you have limits on on several levels. One is the dubious and limited extent to which uh, a former president can assert executive privilege. Another is the dubious extent to which a former president can assert it contrary to the wishes of the current president. And then finally, you've got the general doctrine where a strong interest can outweigh the assertion. So all that makes whatever Trump's allowed to assert pretty narrow. And although Judge Deary didn't say anything explicitly about that, his sort of um, directness and adherence to, you know, a methodical approach suggests pretty strongly to me that he's not going to come up with some, you know, wild, loosey-goosey type of definition that's going to be helpful to Trump. We have a a question from a listener named David that is especially apt now that Judge Eileen Cannon has been slapped down so thoroughly by an appellate panel. Judge Cannon is new on the bench. She was appointed in the last days of the Trump administration, and she had experience in federal court because she was an assistant U.S. attorney. Um, But she's, she's new at being a judge, clearly has not handled this case very well. And David asks, you know, he says, can you spend some time talking about the expected behavior of federal judges given certain kinds of defendant behavior? Where do these expectations come from? He's assuming it's not some inborn knowledge. Is there a federal judge school they have to attend once selected to the bench? And so, is it, I mean, is there a really steep learning curve with these federal judges? What do they do when they're really green to make sure that they actually know how to do the job? Oh, it's an incredibly steep learning curve uh, for almost everybody, because bear in mind that federal judges, unlike most state judges, handle the entire array of federal cases from criminal to civil on an incredibly broad uh, range of extremely complicated matters, the copyright, trademark, patent, antitrust, complicated environmental stuff. Uh, Some of this stuff is, I wouldn't come anywhere near it's so complicated. (laughs) Very few federal judges take the bench having had substantial federal, civil, and criminal experience. Uh, So there's always a learning curve. And there is training Um, There's a federal judicial center. Uh, They do training. They also do various publications. There are sort of federal judicial handbooks that are the the cheat sheet to uh, civil and criminal procedure and things like that. The training is probably on the order of... uh, a few weeks and then, uh, you know, occasional refreshers. However, a lot of it is on the job learning and learning from your colleagues, learning from the professionals who work with you, like the the courtroom clerks and, and even your law clerks. And it can be an uphill battle. You can observe new judges slowly learning how to do it and go from a judge who's somewhat tentative at first in trial to someone who is very confident and makes it run along very quickly. So, you know, again, we everyone is dumping on Judge Cannon. There's no doubt she's smart. There's no doubt she has 
some experience, not a lot for a federal judge, but you'd have to point out in fairness that this particular type of motion is not likely to be handled in any training and is incredibly rare. So there aren't many judges out there who have handled a motion like this or a situation like this. Nobody's handled a situation with a former president asserting executive privilege. Uh, so, you know, it's not as if she's ignored some part of her training. One thing that you said uh, on a recent episode was that if Trump is eventually prosecuted for matters related to this, and if he is prosecuted in Florida, in the Southern District of Florida, that it was fairly likely that the criminal case would get assigned to Judge Cannon because she has familiarity with a closely related matter, that they tend to try to assign related cases to the same judge because they're already up to speed on the issues. Is that is that affected at all by the fact that she made this ruling that was so thoroughly undercut by the appeals court? It would seem to me suggest that, you know, maybe, you know, maybe you need to try somebody else to try a case like this. Would she would she end up presiding over that criminal trial? She could. So there's a process called low numbering, which is basically when you have related cases, they tend to get sent to the judge with the lowest, that is the earliest case number. And that would be her. It's not a sure thing. It's to some extent in the discretion of the judges, often of the chief judge of the district. But no, the the whether or not uh, the judge in question is a screw up and has blown the earlier case is generally not an enumerated factor, <laughs> certainly, uh, although it may be a unofficial factor when the chief judge or, or whatever the particular district uses for the process um, looks at it. Let's also talk about a matter that came down in New York this week. Letitia James, the attorney general of the state of New York, has filed a civil lawsuit against Donald Trump and his three oldest children and the Trump organization, right? It's the... It's basically everything with the name Trump on it. Yes. And it basically alleges that they committed various frauds uh, where they would make misrepresentations to banks and other entities about the value of various assets, claims specifically that they overvalued Mar-a-Lago by a factor of 10 times by falsely claiming that you could redevelop the site for residential, which is not allowed by the, the zoning and permitting uh, on that site and, and things of that nature. I find this a little strange in that, you know, if you if you defrauded a bank, the bank could sue you. Or the, the government, state or federal, could charge you for criminally for fraud. What is – I'm, I'm a little confused by this process where it's like you, you defrauded a bank and therefore the state of New York is going to sue you civilly over having done that. So New York, like many jurisdictions, has laws that allow the attorney general to go after you for sort of pervasive fraud. For it's It's almost like – and I say this with – incredible hesitation knowing how it's going to be used against me. It's almost like a RICO situation <laughs> where uh, basically if, if the authority can prove that you've engaged in sort of systemic misconduct, they can go after you for some of these issues. And the, I think the idea is, is that the policy behind it is a lot of the time, either the fraud doesn't result in easily detectable loss or the losses can be small or difficult to detect or impractical for the entities to sue over. So this isn't atypical. So in a lot of federal criminal cases, for instance, you could be charged with fraud even if it doesn't cause a loss. So if I lie on a bank loan application, um, I could be charged with bank fraud even if I pay the loan and the, and the bank doesn't experience a loss. This seems to be, based on my initial research into New York law, kind of the idea behind some of these statutes that the attorney general is operating under. Now, of course, Team Trump is going full bore. Why is the attorney general, you know, going out here standing for big banks and big insurers and tax authorities and all that sort of thing? 
Uh, but that's not necessarily a, a reality reflecting argument. This is what the attorney general can do. And the type of relief she's seeking, in addition to monetary relief, is basically eliminating the ability of Trump or his older kids, excepting as always Tiffany, to <laughs> be able to run corporations in New York, uh, basically to blacklist them from the corporate world. And, and then there are also certain suggestions in here about who could prosecute them. There's, the case lays out an argument uh, that they obtained an excessive federal tax benefit uh, through one of these valuations and that that's something that the IRS could look at. Uh, this is related to the prosecution that the Manhattan District Attorney was considering bringing about similar matters uh, against uh, various Trump entities about making misrepresentations about the value of things. And the district attorney very notably passed on that opportunity. Now, there was a change in who was the district attorney. Cy Vance left office, Alvin Bragg came in uh, and more or less shut down that prosecution, apparently being of the view that it was going to be difficult to prove a criminal case. The attorney general has pushed forward here on the civil matter. Is that just a reflection that it's it's easier to prove a civil case than a criminal case? Or is that just a, a different political judgment that Tish James wishes to proceed with this where Albert Bragg did not? It's a mix, I think. I think there's no doubt that this is drafted as a rebuke to the DA's office and its failure to take criminal action. But there's no doubt that it is much easier to prove this on a civil level. It's easier because it's preponderance of the evidence rather than beyond a reasonable doubt. It's easier because she can and very much does uh, rely on the uh, Fifth Amendment assertion by Trump and some other people in his orbit. You're allowed to do that in a civil case, to invite the trier of fact to uh, take a negative inference from the fact someone has taken the fifth. So it's a very different situation, much, much, much easier to prove. I think that probably it's not going to change the mind of the DA's office. Uh, and the referral to um, federal prosecutorial agencies and to the IRS, I mean, I suspect they already know what's going on. And if they haven't done it, they're not likely to do it. But the IRS is always a possibility. And, you know, you really don't want to wake up IRS criminal investigation division. I mean, the, the issue with any sort of criminal prosecution around this stuff is, is the extreme difficulty of meeting the intent standard, right? That you have to show when these representations about value were made, you have to show that they they knew they were false, which is especially difficult with Donald Trump, who has made all of these public comments about how his net worth fluctuates with how he's feeling in the morning. And then you also have to show that the individuals that you're trying to bring a case against, that they were responsible for making the value claim uh, when, you know, this, the Trump organization is an organization and it's not Donald Trump personally producing these records. You'd have to show that he's the one who decided that they would make this representation, that he knew and, and intentionally knew that it was false and, and made the representation anyway. And so I think that was a, a very valid part of the district attorney's view of, of why it would be difficult to bring a successful criminal case here. I assume that would also apply in a federal tax case. Absolutely. Actually, federal tax cases are even harder uh, because in federal tax cases, if you have a sincere but entirely deranged belief that something <laughs> is tax appropriate, that's a defense which makes it very hard to prosecute, for instance, tax protesters. So, yeah, I, I mean, people vastly underestimate how hard it is to meet these intent requirements. It's very easy in this civil case where they can basically attribute knowledge to the corporations and go after the corporations as entities based on what people collectively knew. Very hard to prove the requisite criminal intent on behalf uh, of any particular individual. 
So do you do you think the civil case is a significant threat to the Trumps and their business? Because I know when when this was first announced, you sort of, your sort of comment to me was basically your skepticism about any anything like this that starts with a press conference tends to be significantly for show. Is that not, not your view after reviewing the documents? Well, I maintain that anything where they announce a press conference ahead of time is less likely to be a devastating blow than something where it leaks out as the FBI is searching your location. Um, <laughs> but yeah, th this is financial trouble, but it's not go to jail trouble. So this could be right. a very major disruption to Trump and his older kids and their operations in the state of New York and their finances in the state of New York. Uh, but my attitude is that it's seen for so long that a lot of Trump's financial empire is smoke and mirrors anyway. I'm not sure what the end result to Trump as a national figure is. This, I don't know that this could be a blow that stops him from running in 2024 or something like that. I think it's just something that, uh, you know, and reinforces people's priors and maybe threatens him on a financial level. But as long as he can still say, hey, guys, look at what these terrible people are doing to me and get people to send him money, uh, that, that he's not out of it. Let's talk about John Durham. John Durham finally gets to retire. Uh, John Durham, uh, the the special counsel appointed in the Trump administration to investigate Crossfire Hurricane, which was the investigation into the uh, Trump campaign's links to Russia. Got, gotta love that name. That's like that's definitely Tom Clancy uh, wrote that name for them. Um, and so this this investigation it has produced one plea deal. That's the end of this week's free episode of Serious Trouble. If you'd like to hear the rest of my conversation with Ken White about the end of the John Durham investigation and the report that we may or may not see uh, from the special counsel who was investigating the investigators of Donald Trump, we also talked about angry judges in Alex Jones's latest civil trial in Connecticut and in the penalty phase of the Parkland shooter trial down in Florida, judges who are not having various behavior by uh, various uh, parties, uh, attorneys in the case. And we talked about the case of those asylum seekers, 50 of them who were flown from Texas to Martha's Vineyard, uh, whether there are criminal or civil remedies available uh, for the, the actions that brought them there that appear to have involved some of some deceit. In fact, there's already been a civil case filed in federal court in Boston seeking damages, and Ken and I discussed uh, what sort of relief might be available. So uh, if you're interested in hearing that, you can go to SeriousTrouble.show. Uh, you can become a paying subscriber for $6 a month or $60 a year. You'll get every full episode of the show approximately once a week all year. Uh, and you'll also be able to join our discussion threads, uh, be part of our uh, special Serious Trouble community uh, and uh, participate in some really interesting conversations. Uh, so I encourage you to go there and sign up. Uh, and in any case, we will be back in your podcast player very soon. Thank you.